everybody. Welcome back. This is uh, Brandon Thomas, and I am joined for this <laughs> installment of the two Brandons by uh, my co-conspirator, Brandon Easton, as always. Hey, what's up, people? How you guys doing? <laughs> and by popular demand, we are bringing back a special guest from a earlier podcast that was proved very, very popular uh, with with the internet and the uh, and, and the bloggers and the commentators. Uh, Joe Illich is back, and we are going to start our discussion this week by talking about uh, a recent announcement by Marvel Comics. Uh, a new title premiering in September called Mighty Avengers, uh, a book that is featuring a predominantly black and female superhero cast, something that people have been asking for and demanding for years, and it's finally here with uh, a couple of uh, <laughs> a couple of very important notes that that we're going to get into. So uh, I think I want to start with uh, the first impression uh, that that you guys had to this particular announcement. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start off. No pressure. Um, when I first read it. When I first saw the article in the Mighty Avengers, and you see all those characters of color on the cover, or what I think is a cover, obviously it gets your attention. I said, okay, I want to know more. I want to know the creative team behind this. So then I look, and I see the writer is Al Ewing. And I don't recognize that name, so I do some research, and I realize that this person is not a person of color. And then the artist, I don't remember, is the artist Greg Land? It or is. Did Greg, okay, so the artist is Greg Land, and Greg is actually someone that I worked with back in the Batman days. Um, I worked with him on Birds of Prey and Nightwing. And so Greg's a great guy. Greg's not black either, or Latina. So the first thing that hit my mind was, okay, so now we have this interesting collection of ethnically diverse characters but neither the writer nor artists are black or latino and so there's an opportunity missing there to bring some kind of verisimilitude to this book um and there's also a bit of an irony when you consider that the high-ranking Marvel editor who is involved in the publicity of this project some time back, not long ago at all, um, put out a popular tweet inquiring about black writers. So now I understand that these kind of things are planned anywhere from 12 to 24 months in advance. So I'm not saying that between the time of that tweet and Mighty Avengers getting announced that a writer of color or an artist of color could have been put on a project, because that project was, I would imagine, well underway. But there still is an irony to something like that. So that was a pretty noteworthy thing for me. Um, there was a second aspect, um that was noteworthy for me, which is that when I read the Bleeding Cool article, um, the high-ranking Marvel editor mentions Dwayne McDuffie and basically says that the inspiration for this project came from various discussions with Dwayne McDuffie. Mm -hmm. And I'll get into that later because, you know, of course, it's your show, so I can't be taking up all this time. But <laughs> let's just say that that gave me pause that um, that the name of a dead black writer was used in any kind of context to this project. So that's my immediate statement, and we can talk about more as we go along. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um... I was a little bit shocked 
And, you know, I'm somebody who's usually seven to eight weeks behind anything that's going on in comics because I just don't have a lot of money right now. But I try to keep up with the general set of news. And when I saw it, I wanted to laugh because I thought it was a joke. I honestly thought it was something. No, and I'm going to tell you why I thought it was a joke. Because I'm on a bunch of Facebook groups like Comic Nerds of Color and Black Nerds Network and all these other groups. And sometimes a couple of the guys get a funny idea and they, like, go off and make a nice Photoshop meme of how, you know, depicting a situation where Marvel and DC continually ignores black creators and black subject matter. So I thought this was another one of those. And then when I saw the fact that it was on a bunch of different legitimate comic book news websites, you know, I got a little bit curious and I was like, all right, you know. It still feels like pandering, but I need to see a little bit more. Because my immediate reaction to anything black-based from the big two is generally cynical. And I, I, I'm not a cynical person by nature, but when these guys try to handle anything dealing with blacks or, or the African diaspora in any way, I'm always skeptical because it has never been done right other than Milestone and maybe a couple of spots here and there. Like something like Truth, the um, you know the uh, uh, Kyle uh, Baker and um, Reginald Hudlin. Was that Reginald Hudlin who wrote that? No, Joe, no, uh, Joe Morales. Yeah, Robert Morales. Robert Morales. Robert, sorry about that. Robert Morales and Kyle Baker, and you know Truth, Red, White, and Black was one of the greatest things that Marvel had ever put out. Because I'm a big Captain America fan, and I'm, I like black people. So you know when you when you add. For understandable reasons. Right, you know, hey, I know some black folk that don't. That's a whole other conversation. (laughs) You know, but what I'm saying is that it was like chocolate and peanut butter for me, you know. So when I saw this, my first question, of course, is who is writing it? And the second question is who's drawing it? Now, I'm generally a lot more comfortable with with white or non-black artists working on black folk because... It's not that hard to draw black people if you legitimately try to reference black folk correctly, particularly with the coloring, which is a whole other conversation. But with the writer, it always feels a little off. Like there are some great white writers out there who've written black material and have managed to not be absolutely offensive or stupid about it and actually done some great stories, you know. But a lot of my experience in comics with white writers writing black material isn't that great. And I don't remember who did that Cage book. Was it Azarello? Yeah, that was Azarello and Richard yeah. Corbin. Yeah, I I think that was the most offensive thing I've ever, seen, I've ever seen in my entire life in the comic book industry. I thought that all the use of the word nigger and hellblazer and preacher, you know, pissed me off quite a bit. But the the way that Cage was drawn and the language in that book, it it, it made me want to hurt someone. Wow. You know. And I really, you know, it's just really, I don't like that whole, you know, lawn jockey, black male face that some people like to draw. You know what I mean? And it, it looks like that old picture of the shoe polish with the black male face and his mouth looks like a watermelon. When I was wow. looking at that age book, it reminded me of that. So with Mighty Avengers, it doesn't look visually, you know, stereotypical. And obviously, I don't know what the storyline is. But it just makes me wonder why it's so difficult for them to just hire a black writer. It's like, it's like, it it, it seems like it'll hurt them physically on a molecular level to just offer a six issue contract to a black writer. It's not that, it's not like there aren't black writers anymore. Like you can't make that excuse anymore. That, That used to be the common excuse that we couldn't find anybody. That's not the excuse. So I guess it's just that we don't want to. You know, right. and I don't know what will happen if the book doesn't do well, because if the book does well, I mean, that could mean more things or it could just mean that the writer of that book who's white gets a much bigger and better book in the future. You know, and it doesn't mean they're going to make more black comics. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, but, it, but if it tanks, there's always a possibility that they'll use this as an exemplar as to why they choose not to generally do black material at the big two. And that's kind of my take. And that's my fear, because I, I, I don't want to spend money on it. But then I'm thinking if I don't, and a bunch of other people don't, it'll tank, and that'll be the, the excuse for the next five years. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, 
<laughs> always a concern when you only have, you know, one or two books at an entire company that, you know, feature a, a non-white or even female character. And they always have, you know, every book that isn't Avengers or X-Men or Batman has trouble in this marketplace. And I think people understand that. I mean, to me, just... I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to sound like a broken record, but obviously I thought it was a huge missed opportunity on the part of Marvel Comics. Um, I think that if they had found somebody, somebody in the world who is black to write this book, you know, I think that the and and again, this is nothing against Al Ewing. I've heard good things about his work. Um, he's done some, some work for, uh, Dynamite. I think he wrote, uh, Jennifer Blood, uh, for a couple of years after Garth Ennis left it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think he has a history with 2000 AD, but, you know, this, what we're talking about doesn't have anything to do with him specifically or personally, but yes, you, I agree. you can always tell Mar, you can always tell a company's intention by what type of creative team is put on a book. And I'll give you a, a very good recent example. The latest X-Men relaunch. Marvel decided they wanted to, you know, put together a bunch of their great female X characters, put them in a book, <laughs> give them yeah. one of the top writers in the industry, give them one of the top artists in the industry, and that book debuted at number one at over 250,000 copies, I believe. Now, when people see that, they're like, oh, okay, well, it's a group of, you know, female X-Men, great, everybody's been talking about it, Storm has the mohawk, wah, wah, you know, whatever, but when you see the creative team that had been put on that book, it told you that Marvel Comics is serious about this book being a success, because right. they know that it could set a precedent. They know that they do not want to put out, they do not want to put all of this, you know, this, uh, this time, this effort, the marketing push into a book featuring all female characters and have it not sell. You know, right. they're just, they're just not going to do that. And when you saw the creative team that was put on that book, you knew they were damn serious about that book coming out and being a success. Now, you move over to something like Mighty Avengers, which is the same quote-unquote problem that X-Men might have had. It's a book featuring primarily black and female characters. Everybody knows the history of, of the industry, especially in recent years. The creative team that they put on Mighty Avengers, in addition to the god-awful graffiti logo that they, you know, uh, branded on the book, it tells me that, hey, you know what? People have been asking to see some of these black characters. All right, all right. Let's just throw them all in a book. You know, we'll give it to one of our up-and-coming writers. And, you know, we'll see what happens with it. And if it does well, great. But if it doesn't do well, then, you know, we're going to stop ignoring all of these people that are asking to see Luke Cage or Blue Marvel or Falcon because obviously there aren't enough of them to support a book. And, yeah. you know, I'm not going to, you know, play fantasy football and, and kind of, you know, theorize who else could have written this title. But when you put a, a writer on this book that has a limited track record at Marvel Comics, he has a track record elsewhere, a limited track record at Marvel Comics, you're basically, you're basically acknowledging that you could have put anybody on that book. So it, it negates that common excuse of like, oh, well, you know, we would have gotten a black writer, but there are no black writers out there that sell books in huge numbers. Well, obviously that wasn't a concern because they put somebody on the book who doesn't have a track record of selling comics in huge numbers. There so, you go. So, I mean, you to me, it's it's a missed opportunity. I mean, if that if if that's the biggest kind of creative push that they can give the book to get it out the door, it tells me that. They've basically decided that, hey, you know, we'll put this book out. Uh, maybe it'll run for a year and a half or two years at the most. Meanwhile, you know, one of our up-and-comers will get to practice, 
you know, writing Marvel comics, that book will end and we can put him on something else more high profile. I mean, two recent examples of this are the recent Morbius revamp that uh, Joe Keatage uh, wrote and um, uh, Gambit, which James Asmus did for a year and a half. Now, mm. I don't think anyone at Marvel thought that those books were going to be able to go forever. I don't think anybody thought that, hey, you know, we're going to put out this Morbius book and I bet you it lasts five years. But Morbius is a character that hasn't, you know, people haven't done much with recently. They have an up and coming writer that they want to try to get, you know, kind of get in the circulation, kind of get some momentum behind him. Put him on a book with a lesser known character. He'll write the book until he can't write the book anymore. He'll have learned a lot. He'll be a better writer. Now we can put him on an Avengers book. And to me, this seems like the like the same kind of situation. To me, this looks like one of Marvel's uh, new up-and-comers is being allowed an opportunity to kind of practice with these characters. And, you know, we'll see what happens with them. But we're not pushing this book, you know, out of the door as, as hard and as aggressively as we have other books in the past. And... You can always just, you know, they say follow the money. It's follow the money. Follow the creative team. I mean, who's who's on the book? You know, if if Marvel was really, 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 really invested in this book coming out and shooting like a rocket and being out there for several years, there would be a different creative team on it. And, you know, no offense to the guys that are on it, but those are just the facts. So... To, to me, the obvious question is, like it is to a lot of people, is, well, if we're just going to let anybody write the book with a limited track record, you couldn't find a, you couldn't, there's not a black writer out there that's been, you know, writing indie stuff or self-published stuff that could have been given an opportunity to get some practice to, you know, kind of get into the game, so to speak. And, uh, I mean, I don't know... I try not to, to condemn things on site, but I just, I, it, it's hard for me to envision getting behind Mighty Avengers strongly or, or at all. I don't know. Maybe I'll feel a little differently in the next few months. Maybe Marvel will announce other titles that have black writers on it that kind of reduce the sting of this one, but... You know, the question to me is always, you know, there were, there was no black writer. There was no female writer. Nothing, you know, there were there was no diverse candidate <laughs> available anywhere. Yeah, it's um it's mind-boggling to me in the sense of what you're talking about. And it makes me think of the fact that you know, it's funny. I did a Facebook post about a week ago. And I was just really shooting off the cuff. It just popped into my head. And I just basically said, you know, to Marvel, re-suggestion for new line, Deadly Hands. And I basically said, you know, Master of Kung Fu, this creative team. Power Man and Iron Fist, this creative team. Daughters of the Dragon, this creative team. And it really made me think about the fact that in the 70s, Marvel was an amazingly progressive comic book company. And they came out with so many characters of color. And despite the flawed characterizations, at least they did it, and at least they tried. Now, granted, there were no black writers at that time available, and that's why, in part, you got the flawed characterizations. But... That effort was made. Marvel was considerably more progressive than their competition. And so when I look at something like Mighty Avengers, Mighty Avengers has a lot of those same characters, or you see a lot of those same characters operating in the Marvel Universe now. You have Luke Cage, you have a female White Tiger, which comes from White Tiger and Sons of the Tiger from the 70s martial arts characters. You have Misty Knight, who is one half of... Daughters of the Dragon, who is now appearing in the Fearless Defenders. So in a way, I feel like this is Marvel re-engaging this flavor, re-engaging these characters that they brought into the scene in the 70s when they were more progressive. And 
I applaud that. But again, now you have black writers. Now you have more female writers. And like you said, if you're going to choose a writer who does not have a proven track record for being able to accomplish a certain number of sales, which would be considered impressive by industry standards, then why could you not say have gone to Reginald Hudlin, who has a history with Marvel Comics, whose star is now super nuclear because of Django Unchained? Mm -hmm. Why could you not have gone to Stephen Barnes, a well-known novelist who has worked on Star Wars novels, who has worked on Star Trek novels? Why could you not have gone to Jeffrey Thorne, who has written Ben 10, which is one of the hottest global animated properties on planet Earth, and wrote Leverage for TNT for a number of seasons? So, or on the female side, you know, we were talking about Misty Knight and Fearless Defenders. Um, Marjorie Liu who is writing Astonishing X-Men, I believe, and is a well-known novelist, proposed an all-female series to Marvel, I think about a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah. And reportedly, she was told that they were not interested in the proposal because female-driven books don't sell. Wow. So wow, female-driven... Really? Oh, I, yes. I was, she, on, a, I was, was on a panel when she told this story crap. last she, year at San Diego. She was informed of the inescapable truth that female-driven comic books don't sell. So when you have Fearless Defenders, which is an all-female comic book, come out sometime afterwards, and when you have it written by a man, when you have it written by a man who does not have a historical record for achieving a certain sales threshold, Although he has a historical record for critical acclaim, I understand that Cullen Bunn's Six Gun is an amazing series. Um, he did a pretty interesting arc on Superman and Batman with Milestone alumni Criss Cross. So this is understood. But again, if you're going to choose someone who cannot achieve a 50,000 copy sales threshold, why would you not? go to Gail Simone, who can achieve a 50,000 copy sales threshold. And Gail Simone has said on Twitter publicly, she loves, loves Misty Knight. And what's not to love about Misty, right? So if Gail Simone loves Misty Knight and Gail Simone can sell comic books, why would you not engage Gail Simone to write a female-driven comic at Marvel Comics? I mean, that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. That first issue is going to sell like 80,000 copies. So that kind of a paradox is something that I don't understand. The only thing that I can think of is I think about it in terms of profit and loss, which is when you look at the Mighty Avengers cast, there are no characters in that cast, to my memory, that are connected to the Avengers um, movie verse, the Marvel movie universe. Mm -hmm. And so if Disney is owned by Marvel and you're thinking about profit and loss statements, they are not going to put a maximum budget towards an Avengers book with no characters that have not appeared from any movies. Mm -hmm. Now I understand that. And that can justify why there's not a Brian Michael Bendis writing the book. Why hmm. there's um, not a Jonathan Hickman writing the book. And I get that. But again, you would be able to afford Jeffrey Thorne. Yep. And, Jeffrey, and Jeffrey Thorne is written for television. So he has that legitimacy outside of the comic book industry. And that's something that Marvel seems to really love. They love the yes. Of talent from outside the comic book industry that has found legitimacy in other areas. So, you know, that is the paradox that I see there. And, you know, going back to the Dwayne McDuffie thing, um, 
David Brothers, who was a journalist at Comics Alliance, and he wrote his own blog, Fourth Letter, and now he's been given a job at Image, and congratulations to him. He deserves it, and this I hope does. he makes a good impact there. Um, he wrote a column about Dwayne McDuffie in which he showed the story that Matt Wayne and um, John Paul Leone did. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a really um, yeah. touching short story with Dwayne McDuffie meeting some of his own creations. And at the end of the column, he said something which really nailed me. He said, remember this whenever you think of Dwayne. He said, remember this whenever you see someone mention his name and think about why they're mentioning his name. Mm. And what he was talking about is exploitation. Right, right. And I, I even thought about that myself. And I said, you know what? I said, look, you know, that man was a mentor to me. He was a friend. Um, whenever I mention him, I mention him with respect because I have to acknowledge Milestone and all of the founders of Milestone. But I said, you know what? Even with the best intentions, I said, make sure that you do not use his name in total service of your own goals. Mm. So even me, I'm saying to myself, make sure that you do not exploit him. Right. Um, and so when I saw mention of him in this article about where Mighty Avengers came from, it gave me pause. Now, again, the high-ranking Marvel editor that we're talking about, I think, gave Dwayne work some time back. You know, um, Dwayne wrote Fantastic Four. And beyond. And beyond. And because of that... As per the industry pattern, Marvel gives a person outside of the comic book industry some love. DC will then try to give that same person some love. <laughs> and so then suddenly, Dwayne, who was ostracized from DC, is suddenly back writing Justice League of America. Those things are not coincidence. So it would be fair to say that Marvel helped bring Dwayne back into prominence in comic books. Yet and still... The man has been martyred in the industry, so mm. anytime I see him being mentioned, I have to look at that and examine that. So that did concern me. That said, I think I'm going to buy the first issue of this book. And I think I'm going to do it because of something that my fiancé said to me um, some time back, which is, well, damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? So if I buy the first issue and I give it a chance, and if I like it on its own merit, then maybe that journey continues for me. If I don't like it on its own merit, then it doesn't. But I do agree with the potential fear that if this book fails that it can be used as an example to not follow a similar model mm. and to perpetuate the misconception that only books with primarily Caucasian characters can sell in the United States. So I think I'm going to buy the first issue and roll the dice mm -hmm. and see what I get and hope for the best. Yeah, I'm I'm on the fence, brother. You know, I'm listening to you talk about it, and I'm still trying to figure it out for myself. And you mentioned Dwayne, and it was something I did want to say, and I've been wanting to say this all year long, ever since they were talking about his, um, you know, the anniversary of his passing. And first, I'm going to say that my respect for Dwayne McDuffie and all the creators at Milestone, and you, and that's including you, Joe Illich. If respect was rocket fuel, you'd have enough to travel to Alpha Centauri. Wow. You understand what I'm saying? That's how much I respected Dwayne and all the guys at Milestone because Milestone came out during my freshman or I want to say my freshman year of college. And it was during a time of great transformation for me as a human being. And the fact that that stuff was on the market absolutely validated so many things for me, you know. One of the things that I saw happen with Dwayne around his 
uh, the, the anniversary of his death, and I wanted to write something, and I wanted to get his uh, widow's blessing, which I never did, so I never wrote it. But one of the things I was going to say about Dwayne was that I don't like what a lot of people are doing with his name after the fact. I had a conversation with his widow last year at the animators uh, after party at San Diego Comic-Con. I said, a lot of these people who are mentioning your husband's name are some of the most racist people I've ever seen in my entire life working in the industry. Wow. And I, and I told her that. And she, and she, and she, she agreed with me. And I mentioned certain names. And she was like, yeah, I can see that. You know? And it, it, it almost felt like at one point in time, that folks were talking about Dwayne and using him as a way of not acknowledging other black writers. I kind of felt like they were using him against us. And this is not a conspiracy theory. I meant it from the perspective of like, they would constantly say stuff like, there's no one else like him. There's no one else like him. And it was saying it in such a way that it wasn't about his incredible talent and generosity and just incredible intelligence. They were saying it in a way that was like, well, now that Dwayne's gone, we don't have to hire any more black people. <laughs> That's the way – I'm serious. It felt like that. Uh. And maybe I'm misreading it, but the way it was being communicated in a lot of the press and with a lot of these like, so-called luminaries in the industry, who some of many of which I don't trust, some people were saying stuff. And I was like, your language is making it seem like Dwayne was the only black writer ever to live, and now that he's gone, there's no more black writers. It was like Dwayne was great. And that's about it. So now let's not talk about the black thing anymore. Right. And it really felt like that. And I don't know if I'm, over, I'm misreading a lot of it, but I do know, based on my direct experiences with some of the people who was, quote, unquote, Dwayne's best buddy when he was alive, you know what I mean? Not talking about Matt Wayne because Matt Wayne is awesome. But there's oh, some other folks out there, you know, who were like kind of towing the Dwayne line who, when I met, treated me like they were in the Ku Klux Klan. And I'm just like, yo, I'm not the type of person that assumes everything is racist, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I talk about political stuff, but I'm not someone who sees racism under every rock. But I know what it feels like when somebody doesn't like me only because of my race. And some of the cats, white dudes who was talking all this stuff about Dwayne with some of the people, some of the main ones who gave me that vibe. You know what I'm saying? So it's really interesting to see how it played out because I wish he was still alive. You know, and only because I, he always came up with something really cool, you know, and it's just like I was always looking forward every year to seeing what cool thing Dwayne came up with. <laughs> and it, cause it would be one really awesome, super cool thing a year he'd come up with, whether it be Justice League Doom or All-Star Superman or something on television or some comic. You know, it would always be something really cool that came down the pike. And I missed that. And, and, I'm, and I, I can't say I'm not getting that from other black creators. It was just that Dwayne was one of a kind, you know what I mean, in, in that sense. And mm-hmm. I really wish that, you know, and I'm really hoping that all of us get to almost as good as he was. Because if we get to almost as good as he was, we're still going to be brilliant, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I can... that's my take on it. And, I mean, I'm gonna, real quick, I'm just going to say this. It's like, it, man, it. I don't know about this industry sometimes, man, because it feels like it's 30 years behind the rest of the world, and it doesn't have to be. I mean, Marvel and DC generally are still kind of New York-based, and New York is probably the most diverse place in the Western Hemisphere, other than Brazil. You know? <laughs> and I'm just thinking to myself, of like, what, like, like, the continued justification for black absence at the big two, it's, it's beyond... M- it's beyond coincidental. It's beyond planned. It's almost egregiously like we just don't give a fuck about you people. <laughs> you know? It just yeah. feels like that. And, and, I, and I don't know if it's intentional. Like I said, I don't think anyone's deliberately sent me. Well, not, I shouldn't say that. There might be some people with that mentality, but the structural and organizational history and then the way that they currently do business just seems to just keep out black writers and and generally speaking women writers although a few white women get gigs here and there you know yeah yeah i well here's the thing number one the publication history of the two big companies after his passing after Dwayne's passing does not contradict anything that you're saying at all um i i think it comes down to two things I can't speak to 
intentional racism at either the companies with authority because I don't work at any of the companies, although I did work at DC once upon a time. But I think because those two companies are now owned by corporations, the creative flexibility that they had is almost gone. And so what you have is you have comic book companies that are being run with Hollywood mentalities with, say, writer A plus artist B yields 100,000 copies sold C. And so that leads to the Rolodexes. And people have, you know, the editors have their Rolodexes. They have the names that are in the Rolodexes. And when they take the corporate concerns and they align them with their Rolodexes, you end up getting some of the same equations for talent. Now, you can mix and match, of course. Mm -hmm. But there's still a very select pool of talent that are being spread throughout these two mega corporate universes and given work. So in the face of that, what I think is happening is you're seeing a renaissance of the independence. Mm-hmm. And I think those are probably the opportunities for people of color to really kind of like blow people away. I think it, it might end up being there. It might not be in a DC entertainment universe. It might not be in a Marvel universe. It might be with Valiant. It might be with Image. Hmm. It might even be, you know, at um, an IDW or a Dark Horse. I think that arena may be the arena for authors of color to kind of show their stuff. I mean, look, Dark Horse... In Dark Horse Presents did The Journeyman with Jeffrey Thorne and Todd Harris. That's a perfect mm-hmm. example. That's a perfect yeah. example of what I'm talking about. Um, Sanford Green got some love Rock there Apple. as well. Exactly. So a Tony Perrier got some love there. Um, yep. hus- husband of actress Eric Alexander. So I think that may be the arena. And then, of course, independent efforts. You know, there is no better time to create an idea and put it out in print format or digital format than now. There is no better time to do it. And the only possible weakness is money. If you're yeah. doing it to get, if you're doing it to get rich, you're going to fail. But if you're doing it because you have stories to tell, and you must tell those stories by hook or by crook. You can find allies, and you can tell good stories. And I think that's what it may come down to. And one of the good things is, you know, in talking about Dwayne and talking about Milestone, one of the great legacies of Milestone is that, number one, we've reached the 20th anniversary of Milestone. Yes. And um, this year we've had the first celebration at the East Coast Black Age of Comics convention which was in Philadelphia in May, and it was great. It was it was a great panel. Um, the documentary filmmaker Professor Jonathan Gales, who did, um, I think it's called um, White Writers Black Superman, the documentary, he has been shown at throughout the United States. He was actually the cinematographer for the panel. and. Nice. That is the first of at least two and possibly three celebrations for the 20th anniversary of Milestone. Um, the three surviving founders, Michael Davis, Dennis Cowan, and Derek T. Dingle, are going to have a Milestone 20th anniversary celebration panel at the San Diego Comic Convention this year. And then I am trying to arrange a third milestone celebration in New York City, which makes perfect sense because there's no place like New York and the milestone offices were in New York. So I 
I told Michael Davis, one of the Milestone founders, because we stay in touch a lot, I, I told him that you tackle the West Coast and I'll tackle the East Coast. So <laughs> that's kind of the way we're doing it. So that celebration is a great acknowledgement. And what it is is it's born out of not waiting to be acknowledged by the former publisher of Milestone Comics. Because if you wait for acknowledgement for others, you'll never get it. You have to acknowledge it yourself. So this mass celebration is born out of the need for that. And quite a few members of Milestone Talent are doing a lot of work in mainstream and independent comics today, and it's great. Who did the artwork for Zombie in the first run? Okay. That was, um, it, his name is J.J. Birch. Yeah. And he actually went, he went by the name, which is his name, Joe Brzezowski, back after Batman Year One. I think he had drawn the Catwoman miniseries that spawned out of Batman Year One. But he had totally changed his style, and he ended up drawing the first zombie series that Milestone published. And, um, yeah, it, it was perfect for that style. It was perfect for that book, which was kind of like Milestone's Vertigo book, for lack of a better term right now. And, yeah, if you look at what's going on in comics today, you have Sean Martinbro, who's Milestone alumni, who's now the illustrator on Robert Kirkman's Thief of Thieves comic, which is Robert Kirkman's number two selling comic book right in back of The Walking Dead, and wow. Sean and I, yep, and Sean and I, it's a crime comic, and it's really great, um, now Andy Diggle is writing the latest arc, and it's been optioned for a television series by AMC, and then Sean and I are co-writing um, a graphic novel in the Harlem Renaissance for a book publisher, First Second, which is a division of Macmillan, and something like that, Marvel or DC would never entertain. But when you have a company like First Second, who is known for doing creator-owned graphic novels, some of which um, have a lot of cultural weight to them, um, Sean and I knew that that was the perfect place for two black men, and the artist Gray Williamson is also black, so for three black people to tell a story about black history. Mm. To have that opportunity to do that, you cannot expect that from a Marvel or a DC. You can't even expect that from Vertigo nowadays because right. in, the after, in the aftermath of the departure of Karen Berger, Vertigo is going through some transformation and you can read interviews by various creators whom have left the Vertigo stable for their own reasons. So even the climate there has changed for the level of opportunities for creators. But with the, main, with the mainstream book publishers who are doing graphic novels, there are opportunities there. So you have that going on with us, Milestone alumni. You have Criss Cross, who has been working steadily ever since his time with Milestone. He worked for DC. He worked for Marvel. He did some Green Lantern books recently, and he's now doing Bloodshot Zero for Valiant. And he's just going to knock the socks off of that, of course. Um, we know that Dennis Cowan, one of the founders of Milestone, did the Django miniseries yeah. for uh -huh. DC. Um, you have Ivan Velez Jr., who was the writer on Blood Syndicate. And Ivan is actually now teaching teenagers about um, creating their own comic books. So he's taking that knowledge that he gained from Milestone and he's giving it to the next generation and from his classes you may see some amazing talent and he's also started something called Oso Oro which is um, a celebration of Latino talent and Latino issues in comics and Oso Oro was at San Diego Comic Con last year okay. so you know you have this legacy of people from Milestone going on to be successful. So, if anything, that's just a great tribute and validation of what Milestone is still accomplishing today. And again, I think that the independent sector 
is really the landscape now for true creative expression for yeah. creators of color. Absolutely believe that. And to that end, congratulations to you, Mr. Easton, for winning the Glyph Award for your Shadow Law graphic novel. Thank you. That, that was great. It's best, that was great. best writer. That was good news. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was very happy. I was very happy. And thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, you know, I think really the takeaway from something like the Mighty Avengers and how it serves a purpose on one end but still um, leads some dissatisfaction on the other is to basically stop looking for entities to satisfy you in certain ways and to find other avenues in which to tell the stories that have to be told. You know, I think that's what it comes down to. I don't think it's realistic for us in this climate where money is dictating um, editorial mandates to expect much experimentation or to expect um, some thinking outside of the box and some thinking outside of the easy Rolodex for mm. talent. I think that's the reality of it. You know? Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> or or maybe not unfortunately. Like, may, maybe fortunately, right? Because, I mean, that's how... That's how things change, right? Things change through creative movements, right? And creative movements come from dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. right? So this may actually be fortunate. This may be a good thing that looks like a bad thing. Right. We don't know. I think we'll know in the next 10 years. I think we'll know in the next 10 years. Um, and what I'm hoping is that consumers of color... Become more con- become. Well, I know, you know how the sentence is going to end. I'm being an optimist here. It is my hope that consumers of color become more conscientious about their purchasing decisions and try to find their own people in these books, writing these books, drawing these books, telling these stories. Um, and the thing is, I actually feel like women are doing that more. I feel like from what I'm reading in the industry, Mm. I feel like female consumers are seeking out female writers and female artists and female characters. They are doing that. Okay. Um, I do not get that impression that black consumers or Latino consumers or Asian consumers are doing the same thing. I posted something on um I posted something on Twitter, I think, where I was talking about, you know, like basically um the lack of representation behind the scenes of people of color. And I had a guy who's a friend of mine write back to me, Hey man, Joe, that's cool. Don't forget the Asians. And what I felt like saying to him is, why don't you ask Jim Lee not to forget the Asians? Hmm. Jim Lee is co-publisher of DC Comics. Why don't you ask him that and see what kind of response you get? Why are you asking me that? Now, I'm looking out for everybody. Mm. But don't just put the burden on me. Like, you go write the publisher of DC Comics and say, where's my Lady Sheba comic book? Well, you know, man, see, you opened up you, a whole can of yeah. that I was. <laughs> no, you know, I'm gonna say this, and I no, I know. Let me. Yeah, I do know what you're saying, brother. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna say Go. it coming coming from the Baltimore way, and in Baltimore, because Baltimore generally give you some background. Some people think I'm like crazy racist or whatever, but I'm really not. But the reality is that in Baltimore, people are extremely open about their prejudices, and that's how they fix a lot of problems. And the thing is, no, I'm serious. Like when I was coming up. White people around me would say some awful things, and black people said some awful things. But the thing was, in the end of the day, we still were like friends. It was almost like that old uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon where the, where the coyote and the sheepdog have to watch the sheep okay. during the day. 
And in the daytime, they're, you know, at night, they're buddies again. You know, they fight in the day and at night. It was like that with blacks and whites in Baltimore. And one of the things I've always said is somehow black people are supposed to be the umbrella from which all other people of color can operate from. But then no one does that for us. You know, like, I live in L.A., and we were talking about this before, you know, it started. And, you know, L.A. is a heavily Latino city. And the, the Mexicans there and the Latinos, they look out for each other. They're not looking out for blacks. They're not looking out for Asians. They're not looking out for whites. They look out for their specifically their countrymen. I don't really have an issue with it, but, you know, it's how it is. And whenever black folks get together and talk about doing something for black people, it seems that somehow we're supposed to also open up the door for everyone else at the same time. But when those folks get in, they don't open up the door for blacks. You know, and I kind of see it that way. You know, and that's been my experience. Like, I have no problem fighting for Asians, Native Americans, Latinos, anybody. I'll fight for anybody who's being oppressed. But don't. But what I find is a lot of the times black folk go out of their way for other groups and then they don't extend us the same hospitality once they get established. You know, and I can say that definitely the case with some Asian people I've run into. And I can say it definitely with Latino folk. You know, once folks get established with their community, suddenly black people become the enemy. And I kind of feel like black folks on some level just have to watch out for black folks in terms of how we build. I have no problem working with anybody. I I really don't. And I love all kind of people. But the reality is that unless we start supporting each other, we can't expect nobody else to support us, you know. And that's kind of my point. This is something me and Brandon Thomas have been talking about since the first day of this pod. Like the first second of this podcast was devoted to that very subject. And I don't want to beat the dead horse because there are folks who do want to support. But if you just look at the random sampling of complaining and fighting, like me and Jeff and Hannibal Taboo and a couple other cats, we're fighting with other black folks online because they refuse to support black independent comics. Like, we're saying to them, why are you whining about Marvel in D.C.? Because we're already creating. There's already a lot of folks out there right now with extremely high-quality material. And for some reason, I'm not even talking about myself. No one, is, no one has to buy Shadow Law. I'm saying that. I'll get in trouble. Don't buy Shadow Law. That's fine. I'm, there's a bunch of other stuff out there. There's, you know, Brandon Thomas's Miranda Mercury and other stuff he's worked on. Don't buy that either. You know, I mean, Jeff Thorne has his stuff. Hannibal Taboo. Vince Moore wrote the Total Recall reboot at uh, at Dynamite. You know, you got Danny Dixon. You got Robert Roach. I mean, you got a lot of cat. I mean, Jason Wise out of Baltimore. I mean, got. I mean, uh, you got Enrique Carrion who does Vesco or Vesco. I don't know how to pronounce that. Vesco at uh, at Image. You know, I mean, there's all these people out there doing this really incredible. There's Midnight Tiger by Ray Height Comics. You know, I mean, there's all this stuff. And I'm like, yo, just go out and support those cats and we won't have to worry about whether or not Mighty Avengers does well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're making a good point. And I think that comes down to two things. Money. Oh, oh, well, okay, three (laughs) things. (laughs) I wasn't even going to talk about money, so three things. Um, I think part one is brainwashing. And when I say brainwashing, I mean that the industry has conditioned consumers of color to believe that independent works from their own people are a ghetto product. Right. Iron Man is legitimate. Iron Man, the white hero, usually done by Caucasian people who's been around since the 60s, is legitimate. Miranda Mercury, which is new, co-created by a black man with a black female character, somehow not so much. And I saw this happen in a comic book store. I was in Midtown, mm. um, I was in Midtown Comics when Miranda Mercury first came out, and wow. I was the originating editor of that series, so I had a vested interest of in how it did. And I saw a black guy pick up Miranda Mercury look through it a few pages, put it back, and go to the Marvel section. And I had to wonder why that is. Now, I knew the book didn't suck. 
Hmm. I knew it was a good well, book. Well, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm, 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 I'm thanking you and I'm patting myself on the back because I'm a pretty good editor. So That's, also, that that's also true. <laughs> yeah. So I knew that book didn't suck. But I really felt like this person was brainwashed to believe that it was less legitimate than anything that Marvel puts out. So that's factor number one. And, um, like, I think factor number two, you know, beyond the brainwashing, really gets into just, like, a lack of um, effort on the part of the consumer. Just an absolute lack of effort to investigate things and that's something that we've talked about before and that goes into your addiction right that goes into well i can't live without iron man every month right i can't live without batman every month yes you can what are you yep. kidding yes you can yep. stop buying it today to prove it to yourself stop buying it and don't buy it for six months and see what happens and you will find that your life without batman is, is pretty much okay <laughs> Like things are, things, things are still intact, and there is still hope for a positive outcome for you and the human race and those people that you love. Now, if you never experiment with yourself, disconnect yourself from content to which you are addicted, you will never know that. But that addiction, I feel, is at the core of the average American comic book consumer. And as someone who, back in 2007, chose not to buy any comic books for a year, I can tell you it can be done. And when you go back, you go back with a fresh set of eyes and you discover that mainstream comics are very much like soap operas. Hmm. And Spider-Man will die and then he'll be back. And Human Torch will die and then he'll be back. And Robin will be a girl and then a boy again. So the fictional worlds that you have this tight relationship to, they basically remain intact. But you as a consumer can change. You know? So that's what I would like to see a lot of people think about next time they go to the store and choose to support one thing and choose not to investigate something else. Just think about, you know, well, what is, what is more powerful, me or that book? Or can I look through this store and make an effort to find one comic book not done by one of the two big companies with a character that represents my gender and or my ethnic background? And will I purchase that book and will I see what I think? I'd like to see more of that. Oh. Man, that was <laughs> like we really got into it this time. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, it's gonna have to happen eventually because it's only so nice we can be for so long, and sometimes you just gotta say what needs to be said. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, Joseph. I mean, Joe had a great point um, about being brainwashed because I was very much that fanboy at one point. I'd say between 1988 and uh, probably 2000 and seven that was me you know i constantly bought stuff i was buying books i didn't even like just because i was in the habit of buying them and i think what wound up getting me off of that was that weird series of x-men event books like they went from like uh mutant x to island x and this x and ex execution <laughs> song and i'm just like i'm like man like I had read, I know X-Men continuity up to about, like I said, 2007, and even I didn't know what was going on. I don't know what was going on with editorial at that time, but they just weren't being very clear in terms of sequential storytelling. I had no idea what was happening, yet I kept buying the books. You know, and one day I just realized, you know, why am I spending this? And then I started to really get into Invincible, which was Robert Kirkman's book over at, uh, image the other one the one that's not the walking dead you know right <laughs> and uh, at that time at least and i started to give more independent stuff a chance 
And I did buy, and I told you this before, I did buy Miranda Mercury as an individual issue in Midtown Comics. I was really proud and happy to be able to support because even when you first came out, it was really difficult to get clear information about what black stuff was being made. Because even with the hero talk and the black superhero pages, they would say stuff was coming out, but then it would never come out. You know? And I think that also hurt us because there was a lot of projects that people talked about for a while that never seen a light of day. You know, and I mean, Shadow Law was almost one of them. I mean, you know, it was really hard to get that done. And the reason I brought up money earlier is that if we all were just imbued with $100,000 a piece, I think the industry would change like, irrevocably, <laughs> literally. If we right. could just get the money to do a run of whatever story we want to do without any negative editorial interference and put it on the marketplace in a series of graphic novels and let everybody know with some of that money, through, you know, use that money for marketing too, let everybody know that this is happening, you could see a shift that Marvel and DC and no one else, like whether they're parent companies of Disney and Time Warner, no one would be able to ignore it anymore. You know, they couldn't ignore us anymore, which is what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and, but unfortunately, we don't have $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> We don't have $100,000 today. I call it the $100,000 solution. That's all it would take. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I tell you what. I bet you. I'm telling you. I think think five years from now, you're going to see some change. And I think ten years from now, you're going to see some change. And I think something similar to what you're talking about is going to happen. On the horizon. I think I think it will happen, um, but what it will take, in addition to money, as you said, in addition to the best talent coming forward, is it will take some unification of efforts. Right. And when we see, I guess, a reduction in satellite efforts and a smaller degree of big unified efforts... I believe that those unified efforts will lead to a new avenue. And mm. at that and at that point, you know, you won't be ignored. And at that point, you will have solid business constructs through which to tell your stories because the fact of the matter is all of it can sell, right? I was talking to someone no, someone posted something on Facebook about Fast and the Furious. And hopefully by me saying this, I'm not going to capsize the whole um, <laughs> fran- fran- franchise now by revealing, by revealing the big trick that has been played on the general populace. Fast and the Furious is fiction with four black characters in it. Right. Right? Yeah. You've got Tyrese... You've got The Rock, you've got Vin Diesel, and you've got Ludacris, right? right so right. by Dwayne McDuffie's rule of three, that's black entertainment. Exactly. Right? right? But people are they're soaking up Fast and the Furious. They're eating it all. So, or if you look at someone, something like the Blade trinity of films that Wesley Snipes did. Hmm. That made money. So if you're ever told that entertainment that is culture-based cannot sell, that's a lie. If you're ever told that entertainment that is gender-based cannot sell, that is a lie. Right? So um, it will be proven that these fallacies that we're being told now are just that. You know, they're fallacies. And right. even some of the financial decisions behind them have a lacking in merit. But I think that truth will come out in time. You know, and I, and I think that time will be born out of the dissatisfaction of today. Hmm. All right. All right. I think well, that's, that's a great, great spot to leave it at. Great right. spot. Uh, Joe, thank you once again for coming by, yeah. dro- dro- dropping this knowledge for the hey. people. Always good to talk to you guys because I mean you guys, I mean compared to you guys, I'm like I'm like the diplomat, 
I, 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 I swear to God, and it was funny because it was funny because I mean, people who know me know that that was not always the case. Mm-hmm. But um, now I'm a bit more of a diplomat, so the fact that you guys bring it the way you do, I love it, and thank you, and you're providing a service and a voice to people who have a lot of frustration. Well, so, thank thanks. you. Yeah, thank we, you. We do what we can. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. We if we don't, who will? Exactly, exactly. So the discussions will continue offline. Yes. yes. All right. So uh, thank, thanks for stopping by, everybody. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Uh, send the links out. Uh, help us get word out so we can get more and more people listening to these uh, discussions so we can get Joe Illich back so we can bring in some more special guests. Uh, we have big plans for, for the two Brandons going forward and just want to thank everybody for uh, helping us get to this point. Right. All right. So y'all have a good night. All right. Peace. See you next time. Have a good one. All right.